Dorman High School. That was very redemptive uh, for me. I went to North, yeah. I went to Northwestern High School, and I used to hate you guys. Uh, so we can be friends. That was redemptive. I feel like we're friends now in worship. On the soccer field, we're still going to be enemies, because that's where I learned the, to not like y'all, but that's only because you won a lot. Thank you for using your gifts and uh, for being here. That was really beautiful. I also want to acknowledge, if you missed uh, the first video, Ryan Carp next week uh, is going to do a Seder meal for us in the fellowship hall. He's, from, he's a friend of mine uh, from Chicago, from Chosen People Ministries, and so uh, don't miss that. It'll be a beautiful demonstration. Uh, we'll understand what's happening more in Passover. Uh, let's go to the Lord and pray. Father, we, we really do need you. And uh, on this day, we can say, like it says in the Psalms, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. And Jesus, that's what we want to do. We want to glorify and we want to exalt your name. And Christ, for the rest of this hour, we want to talk about your glories, who you are, how great you are. We would ask that you would take our minds off of all the things that are happening in this world, the anxieties, the fears, the stresses, and calm us down in our hearts with the reality that you're a God who is sovereign, you're a God who's in control, you're a God who knows us and who loves us, you're a God who shows us kindness. May we May we taste and may we see, uh, Father, that you are good. There's so many things in this life that we think will bring us happiness and joy, but at the end of the day, it's being known by you and knowing you. And Father, even in your words, you tell us uh, that you are close to the brokenhearted. And so there are, uh, in a room this size, many people who are not doing well, who are really struggling And I pray that you would be close to them. For those who are sad, uh, for those who feel lonely, uh, for those who are depressed, for those who are anxious about their life in the future or the things of this world, for those whose hearts have been shattered by grief or by death, uh, Father, we pray that you would be, like you promised in Psalm 34, to be close to the brokenhearted. And now may we see a picture of you uh, through these words. Uh, we pray in Christ's name, amen. Uh, as we're going through, if you are just joining us, we're reading through as a church the whole Bible in a year, and I'm preaching on various texts as we go through that, and today we're going to look at Deuteronomy chapter 18. So let me read this text first, and then we'll jump right in. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, this is Moses speaking, from among you, from your brothers. And it is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire any more lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers 
And I will put my words in his mouth, and I shall speak to them all that I've commanded. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has spoken? When the prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. This is the word of the Lord. I don't know if you know where we kind of are in the text, uh, but these are Moses' kind of last words. I don't know if you've been in a room where somebody has given their last words. I have on multiple occasions when the body is giving out and uh, the person ushers all the strength they have left. And usually family and friends and sometimes a pastor are there in the room at that moment, not knowing whether they're going to pass. They, they try to say something, and everybody in the room does this. Everybody leans in. Everybody tries to listen. I've been in uh, situations where they've, they've been trying to say something, and, and we'll turn to each other. Did you, did you hear what they said? I, could, I couldn't quite make that out. They're trying to give their kind of last words, and everybody leans into it. These are Moses' last words. Uh, in Numbers, we remember the, they were going to go into the promised land and the 12 spies, 10 of whom said we can't go in there. And so now God's people are stuck in a, a holding pattern like an airplane circling the airport until uh, Moses die and other people die so that they can go into the promised land. And in this second giving of the law, Deuteronomy, Deutero to law, nomos, in the second giving of the law, here Moses is giving his last words. And all of the Israelites, and hopefully us too, are leaning in to listen. What what does he have to say before he dies? This has been their leader for their entire life. And now all the people are leaning in to listen. And in uh, chapter 17 and chapter 18, he does something very fascinating. Not preaching on this whole text of 17 and 18. But in 17, he says... Now, when you go into Israel, you know, you can just imagine him ushering up the energy he has left as this old guy now to give his last words. When you go into Israel, it's okay to have a king. But here's how they have to function. And then he talks after that. He says, and when you go in, this is how the priests should work. And then in this text, he says, and you will have another prophet who will be raised up. And this is how you deal with this. And he sets up. These three major prototypes that we are going to see all throughout the New Testament, the king, the priest, and the prophet, all of which are fulfilled in Christ. But here in this text, he talks about the prophet. Now, here's what we want to do. I want to talk just briefly about the four qualities of a prophet that we see in this text. And the first one is this. The prophet is a mediator. If you look at this text, you'll see verse 15 and 16. It says, the Lord will raise up for you a prophet who's like your brothers, and it is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb, one day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of my Lord or God, or see this great fire any more, lest I die. See, the prophet was a go-between. 
And you've probably experienced this. It's somebody who's a mediator to go between the Lord and to go between uh, humankind. Uh, matter of fact, if you're a parent, you might have said to your spouse at some point, can you, can you go talk to this child? Because I'm just not getting through. In other words, can you go mediate with them? Can you, can you take a shot at trying to like communicate what I'm trying to communicate, but somehow it's not working? Can you go mediate with them? So we understand this need for mediation, for somebody to say something to us so that we can actually um, make it palatable, so we can actually understand it. But the problem is this. We actually need a mediator between us and between God. We need somebody who can tell us what God is actually thinking. In um, 1 Samuel chapter 2, Eli had these two wicked sons, Hophini and Phinehas. And uh, he says, in trying to rebuke them, he says this, if somebody sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if somebody sins against the Lord, who can intercede? And so there has been, from the beginning of time, this desire to know, God, what are you thinking? And how are we going to possibly know what you're thinking? There's this need to know what's going to happen to us in the future. And if we're honest, we have this lust to know the future, don't we? That's why right now, at least in the, uh, the sports world, there's several things that always happen during this time. Number one is mock football drafts. We spend enormous amount of times trying to guess which guy is going to go to which team. I mean, the amount of time that Americans spend trying to sort that out, trying to know the future. The second thing that's happening is brackets. And maybe you're lucky enough to go to Duke, Michigan tonight, and I hope that you are. But, you know, when you fill out those brackets, the whole goal is that we would know exactly what's going to happen. Who's going to get in the final four? And you have all your brackets with everybody, and then they're, of course, all busted yesterday when the Tar Heels beat Baylor, and everybody goes, oh, if only I knew that. The person that bought Tom Brady's Last football pass for a half a million dollars. Don't you think they wanted to know the future? What's going to happen? We'll save them a half a million dollars. Now, do you remember the show? Uh, it was years ago. I only watched it once because I thought it was too cheesy. But it was called Early Edition. And a cat, I think it was a cat, would bring a newspaper to this guy's front door apartment. Do I have that right? And it was the addition for the next day. It was a day ahead. And he would say, oh, this train is going to, you know, fall apart. So I'm going to go save it. And he wasn't a Superman. He just had foreknowledge of just the next day. And so he would go save this elderly lady who was going to get hit by a car. He would go do all these things. He got put in these moral dilemmas. I, always, I thought the show was hokey from day one. Because if I got that newspaper delivered to me, I'd immediately go to my stockbroker and say, bet everything. I wouldn't go save anybody. I'd say, this is the, if I just have knowledge of what's going to close at a different price tomorrow, be taken care of. And so here we have this desire for prophecy, but here's the problem. Look at verse uh, 16. Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see his face anymore, lest I die. Uh, the people here had been interacting with God, and they were coming to God within a tremendous amount of humility. See, we come to God with arrogance. But they had been so much with him. They were saying, 
God, if you actually really speak to us, if you really reveal yourself to us, if you really show yourself to us, it's going to be way too much. You're way too holy. You're way too majestic. We won't be able to deal with it. It will kill us. I like what Brandon Manning says when he said, so God entered our world not with the crushing impact of unbearable glory. Think about that. God entered our world not with the crushing impact of unbearable glory, but in the way of weakness, vulnerability, and need. On a wintry night in an obscure cave, the infant Jesus was humble, naked, helpless God, who allows us now to get close to him. That's, it's the beauty of Christianity, isn't it? Only in Christianity, as opposed to all the other religions, God comes to us, and he comes to our territory. He comes to the world that he's created, and he says, I'm with you, and I'm going to be vulnerable with you. I'm going to be naked with you. I'm going to know your pain. I'm going to know your anguish. I'm going to know your sins. I'm going to know your temptations. I'm going to live the life you should have lived. No other God does that. Here's the second point. Prophets are authoritative. If you look at verse 17 and 18, he says in verse 18, I will raise up a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in their mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I have commanded him. In other words, the prophets are not people just making it up in uh, an abusive way. This is what I think the Lord has to say. No, the prophets in Scripture are only reflecting what God has told them to say. And actually, Jesus does the same thing. In John chapter 4, to the woman by the well, she says, I know the Messiah will tell us everything when he comes. And Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. And then in John chapter 8, when he talks about being the light of the world, he says, I do nothing on my own authority, but speak only as the Father has taught me. And then in John 12, to the people uh, that are struggling with unbelief, Jesus says, I've not spoken of my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given me this commandment of what to say. And then in John 17, the high priestly prayer uh, before he goes to the cross, Jesus says, for I've given them the words that you gave to me, that they have received them and they've come to know the truth that came from you and they believe that you sent me. In other words, Jesus himself takes on this prophet quality of uh, being a mediator and also being authority and saying, I'm only going to say, God, what you, the father, have told me to tell them. I'm not going to tell them everything. It's unbearable for them. But I'm going to tell them what they need to know. And here we understand that Jesus has authority. Now let me, um, let me pause and ask you this question. Who do you give authority to speak into your life? Whose words have the most amount of authority? Because maybe, just maybe, one of the reasons why you might be miserable is because you've given authority to that old high school girlfriend that you had who told you you were worthless and a scumbag and it's still floating around in your head. And you've given those words authority. Maybe it's your parents who said, you'll never amount to anything. And you've given those words authority and they're still floating around in your head. Maybe it's that boss who said, you know, I should have hired the other guy, the other girl. 
Or maybe it's even somebody closer, like a, a spouse or a kid that said, you're a worthless dad, you're, you're an awful mom, and you've given those words authority. You see, one of the things that has to happen in Christianity is you have to allow Jesus to have the authority of words in your life rather than other people. You have to allow him to be able to say, I know you, I love you, I care for you, you're valuable to me, and one day I'm going to bring you home and you're a new creation. You don't have to live anymore to the old man. You're now a new creation. You have to allow those words to have authority in your life. Otherwise, you're going to spend your whole life miserable, living by the authority of other people's words. In my personal work, um, in my personal life, for a year, I just realized this probably three months ago, I think, maybe four months ago. For years, my entire life was wake up in the morning, do a big to-do list, and see how much I can get done in a day. And then wake up the next morning, do a big to-do list, and see how much I could get done that next day. And then I wondered, why, was, why am I so angst at night? And one of the things I realized that I have to do in the morning is I have to wake up in the morning and not think about what I need to do, but instead think about what I need to let go. I can't control what that person thinks about me. I can't control that situation. I have to let that go. I can't control this scenario. I have to let that go. I can't control what those other people, uh, their opinion of me is. I have to let that go. I have to not give that authority. And instead, I have to trust that God's authority and God's words are what I need to hear. Now, quickly, prophets can be false. If you look at verse 20, it has in 21, it has this uh, text of how prophecy can be uh, false because they basically don't come true. And false prophets, here's one of the indicators, false prophets usually try to find an enemy to rally you against. Have you noticed that? Uh, that's what cults do. Cults say, we've got it all right and everybody else is wrong. So you try to find something that you can rally against. But interestingly, the true prophet... Jesus, he doesn't create enemies outside. He actually speaks to the people inside. He actually, true prophets are willing to chastise their own. But whenever we hear prophecy, whenever we hear people saying they're speaking on God's behalf, we have to test them. It says in 1 John, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God. In other words, don't believe everything that this culture says to you. Uh, test it and see if it's right. Don't believe when everybody says, oh, if you just do this, this, and this, then you'll be happy. If you just get these things, then you'll be happy. If you, if you just sleep with this amount of people, then you'll feel loved. If you just get this amount in your bank account, then you'll feel satisfied and secure. Test that. Test it. Think, is, is that actually right? Is that actually good? I thought I um, was going to put this quote away forever because uh, I thought it was going to be outdated, but I, uh, uh, I resurrected it. Uh, Bob Croft, in his interview with Tom Brady, the quote I've used before says this. Croft says, The whole experience, this whole upward trajectory, what have you learned about yourself? What kind of effect does it have on you? And this is Tom Brady's response to that question. Well, I put incredible amounts of pressure on me. 
When you feel like you're ultimately responsible for everyone and everything, even though I have no control over it, and you blame yourself if things don't go right, I mean, there's just a lot of pressure. A lot of times I get frustrated, and there's times where I'm not the person I want to be. Then he says, why do I have three Super Bowl rings? Now, let me pause you. He has seven now. This is when he had three. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater for me out there? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I've reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me, I think, my God, there's got to be something more than this. I mean, this can't be all that it's cracked up to be. I mean, I've done it all. I'm 27. What else can there be for me? The short answer is four more rings and marry a supermodel. <laughs> Bob Croft says, what's the answer? And Brady says, I wish I knew. Man, I wish I knew. He's... He never tested the spirit. The, you know, the reason why he went back after retirement is because he spent uh, time with his young kids and realized getting hit by linemen is a lot easier than this. <laughs> this parenting thing is hard. I'll go back to getting beat up on this football field. But somewhere along the way, he never tested the spirit that maybe more isn't better. Maybe it's not another ring. Maybe it's not the next championship. Maybe those are all false prophets in his life. And lastly, and not really lastly, I'm going to go on for a little bit after that. True prophecy proves true. And that's how you know false prophets from true prophets. I love how this ends. Look, if you need to test the prophets, here's how you know. If it's right, if it, if it proves itself to be true, then it's true prophecy. In other words, as it says in Romans, wisdom is known by her answer. You'll find out if something's true or not just... Give it some time. Let it breathe. Let it find out if it's true. It's a beautiful picture. Now, here's what I want to do um, at the end. I want you to see, if you very, go back to the very beginning, that the Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And I want you to see, uh, as I can get there in my text here, that all of the prophets are pointing towards Christ, the major and the minor prophets. Those in your scriptures are the major and minor prophets. A major only because they're longer in books. A minor only because they're shorter in words. And what I want to do in the next few minutes, put down your pens, is I want to summarize that entire section of scripture for you. And then we'll close with one quick application and be done. See, here's what happens in scripture. Moses went up to the mountain to meet with God and came down with a radiant face. But Jesus also went up to the mountain to reveal himself in the transfiguration. Isaiah said, here I am, send me and comfort, comfort my people in chapter 40. And then Jesus said to God the Father, here I am, send me. Send me to those people and I'll show them comfort. Jeremiah was the weeping prophet who lamented over the fall of Jerusalem. But here Jesus also was the weeping prophet who lamented over death with Lazarus and said on the mountaintop over Jerusalem, how I've longed to gather you under my wings, but you have not let me. 
Ezekiel, we see the glory leaving the temple and breathing life into dry bones and this water coming down from the temple as a sign of uh, restoration. And we see Jesus left the glory of heaven. He says, we're the new temple. And he says, I'm the living water. And Daniel, we see he lived a life of exile and he would go away and pray and seek mercy. And we see that fourth person in the fiery furnace. But Jesus, he also lived in exile and he would go away and pray and seek mercy, not for him, but for us. And he was also in the fiery furnace. And Hosea, he took an unfaithful wife who was a prostitute and he bought her back time and time and time again. And then Jesus, he took an unfaithful people, that's us, the church, who continually betray him and continually prostitute ourselves to the lusts of this world and he keeps buying us back and redeeming us. And Joel, he says, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. But then Jesus, you see, he says in John 16, it's for your good, I must go. And then at Pentecost, that same chapter two of Joel is used, I'll, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your young men will dream dreams and your old men will see visions. Amos was just a shepherd from Tekoa who said let justice roll down like water but Jesus was just a humble person born in Bethlehem from Nazareth who said to the Pharisees you've neglected justice you've missed that part Obadiah says for the day of the Lord is upon you a day of judgment for all nations and then Jesus at the crucifixion says Psalm 118 this is the day that the Lord has made and this judgment for all people poured out on him Jonah, he came to Nineveh, this greedy and self-righteous people, and called them to repent. And Jesus came to us, a disobedient people. And the first thing he says to us is repent, for the day of the Lord is at hand. Micah prophesies that out from Bethlehem will come a ruler from you all. And Jesus was born in Bethlehem to rule, not with a heavy hand, but with mercy and with kindness. In Nahum, we see the prophecy, behold are the ones, the feet who brings good news and publishes peace. In Jesus, we see John the Baptist says, behold the Lamb of God, peace on earth and goodwill to men. In Habakkuk, a beautiful book, it says, look among the nations and see and wonder and be astounded. For I'm about to do a work in your day that you won't believe. And the cry of the book of Habakkuk is, where are you now, God? And then in Jesus, we see him on the cross saying, God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where are you now? He's the true fulfillment of Habakkuk. In Zephaniah, we see the Lord God is in your midst, rejoicing with gladness and quieting us with love and rejoicing with us in loud singing. And then Jesus, when he's baptized, the heavens open up and, and the Father says, this is my son, rejoicing over him. This is my son who I love, with whom I'm well pleased. In Haggai, it tells the people who are in crisis to fear not. And then Jesus tells the people, in the middle of the storm, fear not. And Zechariah, he prophesied and cried mercy. Look at the one who's pierced and the shepherd will be struck. And then Jesus, the good shepherd, was struck and laid down his life. In Malachi, we see that he says, behold, I send you Elijah the prophet. And then Jesus says to the disciples, who do people say I am? Elijah the prophet? He says, no, I, I'm the Christ. I'm the Messiah. And then Moses used to go to the mountain and get the Ten Commandments. But Jesus came to us not to give us God's word, but to be God's word. See, here's the deal, friends. 
Jesus is a picture on the box of the jigsaw puzzle. There is no way to understand whatever you're trying to put together in life without seeing the picture of who this God is and what he's done for us. I only do jigsaw puzzles when I'm on vacation. I have zero desire to do them in Greenville. I don't know why. But I'm one of those people that I have to have the box. I know there's purists who say, don't even get the picture. Well, y'all are all insane. You have to look at the picture. And you look at the picture and you try to piece it together. And it's the only way to make sense of life is to see it through the lens of Christ. And without the picture of that box, you'll have no idea what you're trying to do in your life. And yes, even in this life, we might not get all the pieces together perfectly, but in the new heavens, in the new earth, we'll finally see the full picture and there won't be a piece missing. But without Christ, there's no way to understand this world and there's no way to understand yourself. And there's no way to understand what you're made for or where your value is or what God might be trying to do. You won't even know if it's a 200-piece puzzle or a 1,000-piece puzzle. You have to have the picture, the big picture, that God has come in Christ. All right, so I'll close with this. A lot of people just want God to speak. If, if I could only know what God thinks, if I could only know uh, what he believes, and here's how I want to respond to that. He has. He has spoken. You, you don't need to wonder anymore. First of all, he's spoken by creation. And so this wild world that we live in, when we, and unfortunately, we live too much in front of screens and under fluorescent lights, but I, I urge you to get outside some. Because as it says in Psalm 8, when I consider the heavens, the work of your hands, the moon and the stars that you set into place, what is man that you're mindful of them? or the son of man that you would care for him. You know what incites the psalmist? It's getting out in creation and saying, God, you, you made all of this and you made me. He's spoken by creation. He's spoken by his son. Jesus is the word of God. And he's spoken in scripture. I tell the new members class uh, every time, if, if I ever say something that you think disagrees with this, you go with this, not with me. He's spoken by scripture. And so we know what he thinks. Yesterday, uh, we put the body of um, Jim Hicks in the ground. He was a pediatrician, a longtime church member here. And um, he grew up in the depression. He was born in 1933. Grew up in the Depression, lost his dad when he was six. And the result of being born in 1933 is you grow up very, very poor. Matter of fact, they used to put grease on their toast because they didn't have enough money for butter or jam or jelly. So they would toast their bread. They would find some kind of lard somewhere that they used to cook something else, spread it on the bread. Here you go. So it was uh, understandable and forgivable that uh, on several occasions, even though Jim was a pediatrician, he would actually make change out of the offering plates at Mitchell Road. In goes a 20, out comes a 10. Make a little change. That's why we went to boxes, by the way. 
and online giving. So you can't do that. You can't make change online giving when it's just drafted. <laughs> but it's understandable and it's, uh, it's definitely forgivable. Um, he loved his patients and his kids used to say, I, I wish I was one of his patients because he might love them more than he loves us. But then something happened in uh, Jim's life. His uh, lovely wife, Dora, who I adore, died. And uh, she left behind something, a well-worn Bible. And he would say to his kids, I've got to be good. I've got to be good. I've got to be good. She's watching me. But then you know what happened? He started He started reading his wife's Bible with Paul David Tripp's New Morning Mercies, and he would find the verse in New Morning Mercies, and he would go to the Bible, and he would see Dora already had it underlined. And as he said, she's been here before. I've never been here, but she's been down this journey before. And slowly and quietly, but with full assurance, God finally changed Jim's life, became a believer, he called every person in his Rolodex. Who has a Rolodex anymore? But he called every person in his Rolodex to make sure they knew who Jesus was before he died. Every person. And he'd go to Denny's. And nobody goes to Denny's anymore either. And he'd get the Grand Slam. And he would sit down with random people. And he'd tell them about Jesus. And he died last Sunday. As the kid said, he, he said his last words. He put his head back. He smiled and literally took his last breath. And the word of God, reading his wife, Dodie, which is what he called her, reading her Bible, reading those underlined words, letting God speak to him is what changed his life. Look, these words are going to be true. You have the newspaper (laughs) that's already been given in eternity that one day will be gathered every language, tongue, and tribe that all of us are going to have to give an account to God. You already have that. So you you can bet it all. You can put unconditional trust in the words of Christ and you can live for him and you can live for his glory And it's the best possible way to spend our very short years on this earth until we take our last breath and hopefully die with a smile on our face because we're going to be safely in the arms of our Heavenly Father. So, Father, we pray now that you would um, give us a vision. We listen to so many things, our, our value and our affirmation of who we are are based on so many words that we give authority to that we should never give authority to.